You are the Lord. Forever you shall reign. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundation of the earth? It is He. It is the Lord our God who sits above the circle of the earth. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. It is He who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. It is He, it is the Lord our God, who brings princes and governments to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as empty, as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted and scarcely sown. Scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when He blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. Who would we compare the Lord to? Who do we think He should be like? Lift up your eyes on high. And see, who created these? He who brings out their hosts by number, calling them all by name, all the stars of the heavens that he spread from the palm of his hand. He did this by the greatness of his might because he is strong in power and not one is missing. We serve a mighty God. We serve a great God. We serve a holy God who is greatly to be exalted. Father, thank you. We do exalt your name. We honor you, we glorify you, we gather together this morning to ask that you capture our attention, that you capture our hearts, that you capture our passion, that we get a glimpse of your glory, that we see your presence in your word, we see your presence in the hearts of believers here. We see your presence in the reality of the Lord Jesus Christ who died that we might have life, who has indeed brought us from darkness to light. Father, we are grateful for this time together. So speak to us, encourage us, challenge us, convict us, equip us, for what you have laid before us. And we want to walk in obedience to you. It's in your name I pray these things. Amen. This morning, I hope you got your Bibles handy. We'll be looking at several passages of Scripture. We have been focusing upon on what it means to be the church. And one of the first things that we saw is that God is glorious. Amen? God is glorious. He is holy and pure and powerful and mighty. And we got a glimpse, just a glimpse of the majesty of Almighty God. When we looked in the Old Testament, we saw Solomon dedicating the temple. We looked back and we saw the tabernacle being established and God's glory on Sinai and God's glory at the tent of meeting. But when Solomon built the temple, we saw the glory of God fill the place so that people had to leave it. The external evidence, manifestation of the, of the wonderfulness of our great God. And we saw that we exist to glorify God. Our command is to, in all that we do, what we eat, what we drink, where we go, the things we say, the way that we live our lives, that God be glorified. But we also realize that we can't do that apart from Him. It's His life within us. We reflect the glory of God as we spend time in the presence of God. That's what Second Corinthians chapter 3 and chapter 2, 3, and 4 is all about. Not our competence, but God's presence and God's power working within us. So the glory of God is essential and vital for us to understand. But then there's also the understanding that we are to be people who worship this glorious God. And so our highest and greatest value, the task that we're called to throughout our life is to worship God. And we saw in our previous studies that worship God is the expression of adoration. It is lavishing affection. It's, it's, it's being in love with God and expressing that to Him and expressing that to others. And the other aspect of worship is not only the expression of adoration, but then that adoration that shows itself in sacrifice, in giving, in serving, in living our lives, our service of worship, if you will. Which leads, of course, to proclaiming truth. We value authentic worship. We 
We proclaim the truth of God. We value truth as revealed in the living word of God and the living word, the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's truth that is truth without any mixture of error. It is truth that shows us who God is. It is truth that shows us who we are. It is truth that gives us guidance and instructions, but it is truth that changes us, that conforms us to the image of God's Son. It's God's working within us. And this morning, our focus is upon being a people of prayer, reliant prayer. God's people are praying people. Amen? Would you agree with that? All right, good. I hope, I hope that you will. I hope that you do. I am confident that we have many prayer warriors in, in, in this congregation. God's people are a people of prayer. Living in union with God gives us both the privilege and the responsibility to live in communion with God. Union with God is when, it's like Suzanne and I, we got married. We are united. I have a ring that proves it. Uh, all right, we, we, we share our lives together. We are united, husband and wife. But it is possible for us to be in union and not be in communion. It is possible for me to do something that is wrong or bad or that irritates her or frustrates her. I know that surprises you. But it is possible for me to overstep a bounds or to be inconsiderate uh, just really quick. Suzanne's family, they are a celebrating family. Man, they, when you have a birthday, you have a birthday. Everybody in the family knows it's your birthday. You get calls and you get texts, you get decorations, you get cake, you get food, you get gifts. You have a birthday. In my family, when we turn 12, we stop celebrating birthdays. Yeah, I mean, no big deal. You may get a cake. You probably will. For me, it's red velvet, right? Just going to throw that out there. All right, but you may get a cake or, or you'll get some kind of acknowledgement in, in, in all likelihood. And so when we came together in the union of marriage, we were united. We had a covenant. We have, still do, a covenant relationship. By the grace of God, by the way, I, but, but we have a covenant relationship. I married her, and she's a Mississippi girl. I married her. We moved to New Orleans, Louisiana, which, even though it's next door, it's a far country. I'm just going to let you know that. And then we moved her from New Orleans, Louisiana, where we had just kind of got settled down. We're learning how to live together as a family to South Texas. I'm talking about on the border of Mexico down at the tip of Texas. And the churches that we were planting and working with were deaf churches. So sign language is an essential requirement. She had taken some sign language classes and was really amazingly proficient. But most people in the area were of Mexican background, and the signs were almost as much in Spanish as they were in English. And so here's this South Mississippi girl. Wonderful, by the way, that's a compliment. But South Mississippi girl, sweet as she could be, and all of a sudden she marries me, and I take her to a place where we're at church every Sunday with deaf people using sign language to communicate, and in the work week and during the week, immersed in, in Spanish-speaking people, and she speaks Southern English. But she did an amazing job adapting to the culture, adapting to the mission and the ministry a wonderful partner in ministry. No slight on her, but I want to tell you something. When her first, when that first birthday year came around, I was all about the work of God. Focused on the church, focused on church planning, focused on this, focused on that, and I thought it will be enough. 
for me to get her a card and make sure she gets it by the end of the day. Can I tell you that was not enough? I have since learned I'm doing better. Tell them I'm doing better. I'm doing better. All right, but it is possible for us to be in union and be out of fellowship. In the same manner, it is possible for you and I to have a union with Christ. There was a time when we lived in darkness and all of a sudden God opened our eyes and we recognized our need for a Savior and that Jesus is the Savior. A time when we came to Him in repentance and faith and we got saved and we know that our destination is heaven. We know that Christ died for us and we know that there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. But we are not living or walking in obedience to Him. There's this communion thing, this fellowship thing that has become disruptive, and I want or disrupted. And I want I want this morning for us to understand something that's vital about communication and the communication of expectations and the communication of praises and acknowledgement. Just the communication that is essential for Suzanne and I, and for you and your spouse if you're married, to live in a good relationship of communion of fellowship of koinonia of partnership communication has to be a key part of that you have to talk to one another you have to listen to one another and at its most basic level prayer is simply talking and listening to god amen it's just simply talking and listening to god we pray as a church, and we pray as we gather, and we pray typically as Christians when we gather, and we open a meeting with prayer, which is important to do. We close a meeting with prayer. We thank God for our food. Uh, sometimes we pray before we go to bed at night. Sometimes we zip off of prayers. We're on our way into some sort of meeting. To strengthen our prayer lives, we teach a practice of model prayers, and we use the acronym P-R-A-Y. We send out prayer emails. We make you aware of intercessory needs. You guys will know what P-R-A-Y stands for. P is for praise. We acknowledge God for who He is. When we see Him as He is, we see ourselves as we are, and R is repentance, is getting clean before God. Short accounts, short accounts. Lord, convict me. Let me know what I need to confess and repent. Father, I confess my inability and my weakness, but I look to You to cleanse me and make me new. P-R-A. And then we come to the A, which is simply to ask, and that's intercession. That is praying for the needs of others. It is supplication. It is praying for my needs. It is praying for someone's health. It is praying for concerns. It is praying for someone's spiritual life that they will come to know the Lord. It is praying for guidance and direction. It's asking. And then why is yield? Yield, we simply say, is identifying with Christ. Nevertheless, not my will. I've asked these things. Not my will, but thy will be done. But yielding is more than that. Yielding is Father, I want to know your will. Tell me your will so that I can pray in agreement with your will. Not against your will, not around your will, not ignoring your will. But I want to know your heart. I want to be pleasing to you in the things that I pray. And you listen. But yielding is also when God speaks, you obey. It is like Romans chapter 6, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 4. A soldier reporting for duty. I present my, my body as instruments of righteousness and so I yield to you. I submit to your authority. And so prayer is vital. It's important. We've seen God move in response to his people's prayers. We've seen God do amazing things. And I can give you testimony of lives changed. I can give you testimony of marriages saved. I can give you testimony of children 
rescued and grandchildren rescued. I can give you testimonies of God's provision, and sometimes those are exciting testimonies to share. I'll share one with you really quick. It was in May of 2007. Pendleton Street Baptist Church was meeting over at 1100 South Main in a large facility that we were having difficulty maintaining. We were praying and seeking what God would have us to do as a church, and we had a Wednesday night business meeting, we were having them every other month at that time, and it was time to give a financial report, and our treasurer at that time stood up and said, just to let you all know, we have $18,000 in the bank account. Now, that sounds like a lot of money until you recognize that the expenses were running at about forty dollars to $42,000 a month. And so we just gathered as a church right there, and we prayed, and we said, God, provide for our needs. Demonstrate your faithfulness. God, we need you. And our commitment was, and still is, we don't spend money we don't have. That's a good idea, right? We don't spend money that God hasn't provided. And so we pray by faith, asking God to provide it. We step out in faith. The next morning, the next morning, Shirley Cook comes down the hall and says, I got a letter you need to read. Okay. I opened it up, and it was a brief letter from an attorney They said, Dr. Southern has passed away. His estate has gone into probate and has been settled, and he has left a check for $100,000 to be given to Pendleton Street Baptist Church for the furtherance of the kingdom of God. And you think, well, that's just a coincidence. I want to tell you, I don't believe in coincidences. I believe in the provision of God through a legacy gift miraculously right when we need it. Just demonstrating again the testimony of God. Now, it's not all about money. I want you to know that. But it is about the power of God to be able to do exceedingly abundantly all that we can ask or imagine. And we're in a transitional time. And as we look to moving our worship services and the heart of our ministry back to the west end of Greenville, we're excited about what God has in store for us. There's a few things I want to make sure that we don't do. I want to make sure that we don't look too small that we don't adjust our expectations to simply what we can do. I want us to be aware of the truth, just like Paul prayed for the church at Ephesus, that God thinks bigger than we think. Amen? Would you agree with that? God thinks bigger than we think. We just read in Isaiah 40 the might and the majesty of God. He measured the stars across the heaven from the span of His hand. He spoke the world into existence. He establishes nations and, and it's, they're barely planted before he blows and they go away. We have a mighty God. Amen? Now, you look at your problems and our problems and our challenges and our opportunities, and we tend to be very circumspect in our focus. And I want this morning for us to just kind of take the blinders off and to recognize that God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that you and I can ask or can imagine. That's what Paul said in his prayer for the Ephesians. You remember when he wrote his letter to the church at Ephesus, he, in chapter 1, he didn't write chapters, by the way, but the way it's divided in our Bible. In chapter 1, the second half of that chapter is a prayer, and he prays that they'll know Christ and that they'll know his power that works mightily within him, and he goes off into a little doxology. In chapter 2, he explains to them what God has done in salvation, bringing us from death to life, and then uniting Jew and Gentile together and making one new being the church, Christians now, no longer separate. In chapter 3, again, he gives them continual exhortation, explanation about what 
God has done in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he ends this prayer, this prayer that they will know the depth of the love of God and the height and the width and the breadth. That they will be united in unity, but they will know the power of God. And here's what he says in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21, reminding them, he says, Now to him, to God, who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. Do we want God's glory in this church? I'm waiting on a resounding yes. Do we want the glory of God in this church? We do. Guys, we do. I know your hearts. I listen to you. And I don't know that we shouted enough. I don't know that I shouted enough up here. But the passion of our heart is that, that people see God and know God as we see God and know God. We want God's glory to be on display. How is God glorified in the church? As we recognize that God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask or imagine. As we walk in obedience to Him. As He demonstrates His power on our behalf for His glory. We see the glory of God on display. So the first thing I want you to know about reliant prayer, and I'm not talking about simply praise. I'm not talking about simply repentance and confession and cleansing. I'm not talking simply about petition, intercession, supplication. There are a lot of different aspects, a lot of different types of prayers, a lot of different ways of praying. But the attitude of our heart in reliant prayer is when we allow God to expand our ambition for His glory. To allow God to open our eyes to the things that he is able to do. God made a covenant with Abraham. And he said, I'm going to make you a father. He changed his name. I love that. He went from Abraham, good father, great father, to, to uh, Abram, to Abraham, father of many nations, the father of many. I am going to make you the father of many nations. And he just expanded his call upon Abraham's life. And he walked through some really difficult days to get there, and yet we see that promise fulfilled, the promise of a land, the promise of a nation, the promise of a people, the promise of the means by which the Messiah would come, the Savior would come. We are praying for the gospel to penetrate the west end of Greenville. We're praying for a building that is filled with disciples. We're praying for a building that is not only filled with disciples where disciples are made, but then is sent back out into every neighborhood, in every community, in every workplace, in every work, every family, every school. We're praying for effectiveness in missions. We're praying that God will multiply the work that He does in us and that we will be a congregation that then plants congregations and then plants congregations. We're praying that God will use us to make mature disciples in the West End and all the way around the world. Is that too big for God? It's not. It's not. And the expression of that in your life and in my life, we need to recognize that as we pray reliantly upon God, God's going to lead us to do things and lead us to see things and lead us to pursue things that we're going to think is too big for us. It's going to be too much, more than we can handle. There was a young man in England uh, at the end of the 18th century who fell in love with God and fell in love with the Word of God. He studied Hebrew and he studied Greek on his own so he could learn to read the Bible in, in the original language. He studied Latin. He also studied out of the Vulgate. He became a young man as a preacher. He became a preacher as a young man, passionate for the Word of God. And they had a minister's fellowship there in Northampton. 
And he was praying, saying, listen, we're to make disciples of all nations, and we need to be missional. We need to be a church on the move. We need to be a church that's accomplishing great things for God. And you will remember, many of you have heard the story of William Carey as he presented a paper that he had written to this minister's fellowship in which he exhorted them, exhorted all believers to, be, to, to do great things for God and to reach the heathen with the gospel. Heathen at that, in that day identifying people from other countries and nations. His message was not well received and you will remember the senior pastor, the older pastor who was in the area speaking for many, who told him, sit down, young Carey, William Carey. If God wants to reach the heathen, he'll do it without your help or mine. And so they became complacent. I want you to understand that if you look at the life cycle of churches, churches get excited and passionate. They get started really good. They see fruitfulness, and then they become very protective of what's happened and what is happening. And all of a sudden, it becomes kind of a bell curve. And so rather than being on mission, they slow down and they plateau, and they begin to decline protecting what God has done. We need to never default to... uh, uh, being settlers, we need to always be pioneers on the go. We need to always be moving in obedience to where God would have us to go as God expands our ambition for His glory. So as we pray, God helps us to see more. He helps us to see what He's doing. Prayer increases our ambition, our vision, our expectation of both what God can do and what God wants to do. And I want you to tell the, tell you this works for our church, but it works for you personally. However big you think, God thinks bigger than you do. However big you think, God thinks bigger than you do. And part of our reliant prayer has got to open my eyes. I want to hear from you. I want to know what you would have me to do. I want to know what step you would have me take. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that you can ask or imagine. To him be glory in the church, his organization, his plan throughout All generations, forever and ever. Amen. Paul is always praying. He is always praying. He is always teaching. He's always saying, let's go. Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Silas. You know, Paul is a a church planter traveling. Paul always wants to see. We see in Scripture, Paul always being used by God to mobilize people onto God's agenda. I know no better great, I don't know of a better illustration of, of God's ability and how God expands our vision and how God helps us to see what he's possible of than the story of David and Goliath. I was talking to a family this past weekend and said, I get to tell the story of David and Goliath Sunday. I love these passages of Scripture. First Samuel chapter 17. How many of you are familiar with the story of David and Goliath? Show me a hand so I can get a feel for our background here. We're pretty, pretty, pretty uniformly. Most of us have heard this story at some point. The Philistines and the Israelites are enemies, and they're encamped one against the other, one army on one side of the valley and one army on the other. The Philistines, the enemies, uh, come out, and they challenge the Israelite army. Here comes this man. His name is Goliath. Out from the camp of the Philistines, this is verse 4, 1 Samuel 17, came a a champion named Goliath of Gath, He was six cubits and a span tall. He had a helmet of bronze on his head. He was armed 
with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs, a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield-bearer went before him. And here's what he does. He stands and he challenges the armies of Israel. And he says, who are you to fight against us? Here I am representing our nation. You send your champion to face me. And whoever wins, wins it all. Well, how did the Israelites respond? Verse 11, when Saul and all of Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they said, great, it's just a one-on-one. Let's go get it. No, they were dismayed. And greatly afraid. Meanwhile, we've got young David coming up on the scene in just a few verses. Are you familiar with young David? Seven brothers. David is the youngest of the seven. He's the runt of the litter, if you will. His brothers are in the army. They're there. They're in the army. They hear the challenge. They're with the soldiers as they sit around the camp at night. But David's not even in the army. He's not big enough or strong enough or whatever. He's got some sort of exemption. And he's just doing the food run. He's Ubering food over, no, he's bringing food to his brothers there. And so there there they are, and he sees what's going on. He sees that the giant, and the giant, by the way, is not quietly standing. He's ranting and raving against Israel's God. And David looks around, and he sees frightened soldiers everywhere. And he hears his God's name being taken in vain and being mocked, and it makes him angry, and he begins to talk to other people about it. What's, what, who, what, what happens to the one who wins? What about this? What about that? And his brothers even get mad at him and say, Buddy, you're not qualified. Why don't you just be quiet? You're going to embarrass us all. He goes to Saul and he says, I'll go. I'll fight. I'll go. And so Saul says, well, what are you, basically, what are your qualifications? If you go down to verse 37, he gives his curriculum vitae. He says, God has used me in the past. Against lions and bears. Verse 37, David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And so Paul said, Go, you can fight. And the Lord be with you. Now we look at David's faith. But was David's faith in his confidence and in his ability? Was David's faith in his ability with the sling? His faith was in what the Lord had done in the past and what he knew God wanted to do then and in the future. His faith was in the Lord. He was not trusting in his sling, his aim, his ability. He was trusting God. So he goes out on the field. They try the armor on. It's too big. He takes it back off. He goes out onto the field in verse 42. He's mocked by Goliath. And he responds, you come to me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. And David, his confidence in God says, and you are about to lose your head. You're about to die. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear. For, listen to this, the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. Here's the whole point. Look at what God does through a guy who is trusting in the Lord of heaven, a God whose ambitions have been expanded, not personal ambitions, ambitions for the glory of God, not his vision, God's command that he sees expressed. God's mighty work is often done, most often done, through insignificant instruments. We find in 1 Corinthians that Paul says, listen, 
most of us aren't real, real, the most educated people. Most of us aren't the most confident. Matter of fact, if the world looks at us, they see the weak and the foolish. And you know why God does that? God does that to confound the wise, to show his glory, to show his ability. Here's the point. God expands our vision, but he also transfers our trust to him, and he is able to do exceedingly abundantly more than we can ask or imagine. What did you guys know the story? David stands before him. He slings the rock with his sling. It hits Goliath in the head and it kills him. It sinks into his forehead. Goliath falls down. David has no sword. David runs to the body of Goliath. He takes Goliath's sword and he cuts off Goliath's head and he brings it back to Jerusalem. And they keep Goliath's sword. And they even put Goliath's sword in a temple, in the temple as a memento of God's victory. But I will tell you that I agree with great preachers of the past who preached on this and said, I think David made a mistake there. I think Saul made a mistake there. It wasn't Goliath's sword that should have went in the temple. It should have been a stone. It should have been a sling. Because the point is not the valor or the strength of the enemy, the valor of the soldier or the strength of the enemy. The point is the provision of God and the work of God through anyone who will trust him and walk in obedience to him. When you pray, you get a look at God and you get you get glimpses of what God wants to do and see in your life and in this world through your life and through this church. He expands your your ambitions, but it, what he also does is it transfers your trust. It's not what we can do, it's what God can do. It firmly anchors our trust in God, not in ourselves and in our ability. You've heard this once. If you've been here any length of time, you've heard it a lot. <laughs> a lot of times, God leads us to do something, and it might be just confess a sin or change an attitude or to, to take a step of faith in a particular area, and we say, I can't do it. I can't. He never said I could. He can. He always said he would. We live by faith in Christ and his work and his ability through us. Let me just give you an example when it comes to praying for the lost. Do you guys pray that lost people will be saved? All right. A lost person is a person the Bible describes as deceived or dead, spiritually dead, not alive to God. A person who is going after their own way, seeking to please themselves. A person who is bound for destruction. How many of them can you say? Not a one. How many of them can God say? Everyone. And so we pray and we ask God to save them and we pray biblically and we pray, Father, here's my friend. I pray that you would draw him because Jesus says no one comes to me except the Father draws him. And so, Father, this is this guy. You know his name. You know his address. You know his history. Draw him to the presence of Christ. Father, I pray that you will convict him of sin, that you will make him aware that there is a holy God, a creator God, whose law he has transgressed, that he's guilty of breaking your law. I pray that you will show him Jesus. I pray that you will open his eyes, help him not to be deceived and have any sort of self-sufficiency, but see that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father 
but by Him. I pray, Father, that you'll make Him aware that there is coming a day of judgment. And I pray that however you have to do this in His life, Father, He'll feel the heat of hell here. And know that an eternity separated from you is an eternity of torment. And that is not what you want. You're not willing that any should perish. You want all to come to the saving knowledge of Christ. And so, Father, I pray that you will grant him an understanding or a taste of heaven. And the goodness of God will bring him to repentance. I pray, Father, that you'll plant your word in his heart. That you'll help him see that the answer to his weariness and his frustration and his depression and his loss of hope, and his daily struggle is found in you, who said, come unto me, all ye who are weary, who labor, and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly. You'll find rest for your soul in me. And you pray passionately for your friend who is lost, biblically for your friend who is lost. And God will expand your ambition for Him in multiple ways, but here's what He'll also do. Also shift your trust from your ability to Him and His ability to do what only He can do in your friend's life. And then He begins to energize you because you trust Him, because you have prayed for Him. You find direction and energy and strength and you find words to say. You find sacrifices to make to be an instrument that God uses to draw him. You pray that God will convict him. You pray that God, and then you have an opportunity to tell him about Jesus, to warn him about hell and judgment, to plant the word of God in his heart, to invite him to find rest in Jesus, to be kind to him so that he sees the goodness of God, to be honest with him so he's aware of the danger that he's in and the glory that is promised to him in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, reliant prayer, reliant prayer expands our ambition for God's glory and it firmly anchors our trust in God, but it also fuels our obedience. It also fuels our obedience. Years ago, I heard a really bad joke. Well, I mean, I hear, I've heard a lot of really bad jokes. But there's one that stuck with me, and it was told by a pastor who came to one of our churches to preach a revival and he was illustrating our need to not simply pray, but to obey the things that God tells us in prayer. And I'm going to tell it to you. Don't get mad at me, okay? But he said that there was a, a lady who had a husband who was a drunkard. And he would keep going to the bar and keep going to the bar. And she would pray. She was a good church lady. And she'd pray, Lord, Lord, stop him from going to the bar. Just burn the bar down. Maybe if he didn't have a bar to go to. He wouldn't, he, it would solve the problem. Just burn the bar down. Lord, stop him from going to the bar. Burn the bar down. Well, she had this friend of hers who she shared this request with. Now, she had been praying it for months. But she had a friend who she shared this request with. And she said, would you pray with me that the Lord will take the temptation from alcohol away from him and if necessary, would just burn that bar down? She said, sure, I'll pray that with you. The next morning... She got news that the bar had burned down. She called her friend up. She said, what in the world is going on? I've been praying for a long time that God would burn that bar down. You pray one night and it burns down. She said, well, yes, ma'am. I'm, I'm the kind of friend who put feet on my prayer. I gave God a little hand. 
Now, I want you to know something. God doesn't want us going around burning bars down, all right? Really bad. I warned you. I warned you it was a bad joke, okay? But I do think that there is a principle. Sometimes we say, God, I want you to save my friend. Just don't ask me to get involved. God, I want you to save my friend, and I'm going to trust you to do it. And I hope you send somebody who can speak well. And somebody that they trust. And somebody that they'll listen to. And our prayers are all focused on what God should do through other people. Can I tell you what reliant prayer does? Reliant prayer not only expands our ambition for God's glory. Reliant reliant prayer not only places our trust away from us and on Christ. Reliant prayer fuels our obedience. Reliant prayer engages us in God's work. And I'll give you a quick illustration, and we'll be done with this. But in Colossians chapter 1, we read Colossians. We're in Colossians typically now. We're taking a brief break from that. But in Colossians chapter 1, you remember how Paul starts that book. And in verse 3, he says, man, every time I think of you, I am praying for you. Colossians chapter 1, verse 3, we always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. And then go down to verse 9, and he's talking about how I pray for you unceasingly. I am always giving thanks to you. We have not ceased to pray for you. We have not ceased to pray for you. And here's what he prays for them. We ask that you'll be filled with, what? Knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. Knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. What was Paul's job? What was Paul engaged in? Go down to verse 28. Actually, you can back up to about 26, but we'll start in verse 28. Uh, What was Paul engaged in? He was a teacher. He was a preacher. He was one who was continually exposing the mystery of the knowledge of God, the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ, that was hidden from generation, but has currently been revealed. God has revealed it through His Son, Jesus Christ. And here's Paul's job description. Jesus is the one that I proclaim, that we proclaim, Warning everyone and teaching everyone how with all wisdom in order that. Why? So that, you know, the, the, the purpose of this is that we can present every man perfect and complete in the Lord Jesus Christ. He goes on to say, for this I toil, I work, I struggle, I sweat, I strain, I adjust my calendar, I focus my attention. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Did you get this? Paul is asking in his prayers for God to do what Paul is already engaged in doing, obediently. Do you understand how God fuels your faith and obedience as you pray? Takes your eyes off of you. You're not just a little young shepherd boy. You're a warrior for the king because the battle is the Lord's, and it's his glory at stake. You're not just a fumbling friend. You're an evangelist who they already have a relationship with, and they will listen to you because they hear you and they see you, and they don't think you're perfect, and you don't have to be perfect. You just have to be willing because the battle's not yours. It's the Lord's. And when you walk in obedience to the things that God has called you to do, you know what you get? You get energy, and you get strength, and you get God's activity, and you get God working through you. And sometimes you may feel like you're fully expended. Go to the book of 2 Corinthians when you get a chance. Like, 
half an hour or so from now. Go to the book of Second Corinthians and read chapter 2 and chapter 3 and chapter 4. And you're going to find out we have this treasure in clay vessels. You'll see Paul saying, who is confident for these things? I'm not confident for these things. You're not confident for these things. We trust in the power of God. And reliant prayer says, I can't, but he can. He never said I could. He always said he would, but here I am. You know what he wants to do? He wants to use me. And when I walk in obedience, when I pray reliant, and I get a picture of God's glory, and my ambition for his glory is increased, and I trust him, not me, he fuels my faithful obedience, and he is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask or imagine. Simple sermon, right? We've got exciting days ahead in the life of this church. Now, we've had exciting days in the past. These are pretty exciting days right now. You've got exciting days ahead, too. And here's what I'm praying, and I need you to pray with me. First of all, that God will expand our ambition for His glory over the next four months, six months, eight months, year, 18 months, 24 months. We have an opportunity. We're going back to the West End in our worship services and as a ministry center. And the geographic location, I think, in this, in this case, I think it matters. I think God, we are, are, are moving back to the mission field that God originally planted the church in. This church was established, by the way, you may not know this, it was constituted under the name of West End Baptist Church in 1890, March the 30th. It was planted by some folks at First Baptist Church. Dr. Furman was the pastor there. That name may ring a bell or two. They had a vision for a community on the West End, and it was a time of radical transition. People were moving into the area. There was no bridge across the Reedy River. They wanted to make sure that people in that area heard the gospel. We were there for 133. We have been there for 133 years. And there have been times when we've seen the power of God move and work and souls saved and lives transformed, and what an impact on the community. But there have also been times when we were mostly just identified by a building and a gym and not a whole lot of activity of God's move and work in that community. Just to be honest. But can I but tell you that I am I'm excited and I am convinced that God has continued to increase our ambition for His glory through this congregation on the West End. And we are going back there and going to be worshiping there soon. We're talking months. We're not, we're not talking about... Future, And we need to be the church that is expecting great things from God and that is asking for great things for God. Willing to do, which is a William Carey sermon. The biggest quote is we need, to, we need to attempt great things for God, expect great things from God. We need to be willing to trust and believe that God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask or imagine. And we need to recognize that it's not our competency, but our willingness to yield to Him and His ability and to put our trust in Him as we walk in faithful obedience, willing to do the things that He calls us to do, trusting in Him to fuel our obedience and to be our energy and our strength. Isn't God good? These are exciting days. By the way, next Sunday morning, during the Sunday school hour, youth and up, we're going to be meeting in here, and we're going to talk about just a few things to get us started on a series of family meetings to make sure that we're prepared for the future that God has for us, to make sure that we are the congregation that He would have us to be. Next week, we're going to talk about 
how we're going to communicate this to the community and in the congregation. We're using the word branding, all right, this logo, but it's not. Again, this is under the guidance and the, and, and the, the, the wisdom that we have as far as communication skills, how we can connect with our community. Uh, and so we're going to be talking about branding. We're also going to be talking about the building. You want to know what's going on with the building? Come next week. Don't have time this morning. But we're going to be talking about progress with the building and expectations and how that building is going to be used initially. And then we're going to dream about how it can be used even more for the glory of God in the West End. Isn't that great? And then we're going to talk about that most exciting topic of all, budget. And so three Bs next week, branding, building, and budget. All right. And so come, come on. It's a Baptist church. We do things in threes. And so, come on, but I encourage you to come and be a part. And then we're going to pray. We're going to sit in this room or stand in this room or kneel in this room. And we're going to ask God to expand our admission for his glory. And we're going to put our trust in him. And we're going to seek him to fuel our obedience in whichever way he leads us to go. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for the reality that you are a great God, mighty and majestic, powerful. Help us to not forget what we know. That you're the God who spoke the universe into being, that nothing is impossible with you. That you are mighty and majestic and transcendent, but also you are close and and imminent. You're near to us. You came near to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. You came near to us through the presence of your Holy Spirit as you made us a part of your family as you take up residence within us, as you unite our hearts with you and with one another. Thank you that you have a, a, a mission opportunity for us. Thank you for this next step, 133 years. And we think about that as a long time, but in your economy, it's a drop in the bucket. It's just the beginning. It's just the beginning of what you desire to do through this congregation, through your people, as we walk in obedience to you. So give us clarity of sight. Give us commitment and and surrender. May may we be yielded to you in every aspect of our life that you might be glorified in us. In your name I pray.